0: And welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton Stevens, and my time capsule is the podcast. And I hope that doesn't come as a shock, because if it does, you're probably even less au fait with technology than I am. Anyway, it's the podcast where my guest reveals the five things they would choose from any time in their life to put in a time capsule. They can pick anything, no matter how insignificant it seems. It can still be with us or a passing memory, solid or ephemeral. But it has to be something that they personally cherish. Well, that's not quite true. Four of the things they choose are things they treasure and would wish to see preserved. But one of them is something they wish they could erase from their life and then we do them the favour of burying it in the ground so they never have to think about it again. My guest in this episode is the English actor Finty Williams, who graduated from the Central School of Speech and Drama in 1994 and has since appeared in numerous plays at numerous theatres all over the country. She's been on television shows such as Born and Bred, Cranford, The Vote, Doc Martin and The A-List. She's the voice of Angelina Ballerina in the TV cartoon series and has appeared in the films The Mystery of Edwin Drood, Mrs. Brown with Billy Connolly, Gosford Park with Charles Dance, Maggie Smith and Kristen Scott Thomas, The Importance of Being Earnest with Rupert Everett, Colin Firth and Reese Witherspoon, and Ladies in Lavender, Macbeth and We Can Be Heroes, amongst others. Finty is the daughter of the actors Michael Williams and Judy Dench. So, let's discover what Finty Williams will pick from her life to preserve in a time capsule hello
2: hello how are you
0: fantastic how lovely to see you god it's been years finty
2: you literally don't look a day older
0: not a day older just decades
2: not at all
0: and of course i had the great joy well i've had the great joy of working with your mum and also the great joy of working with your dad yeah very happy memories of that we did a radio series together and he was just brilliant fun
2: his favorite thing in the world doing radio
0: yeah he said that at the time
2: he loved it more than anything And in fact, one of the last jobs he did was uh, a recording of Silas Marner. Mm -hmm. And I got to play Effie. And we were in a studio with Alex Jennings. And that's awful. She's a really good friend of mine, Kathy Sahara. (laughs) And my dad was too ill to stand up to record. So he sat down and it was the scene where Effie says, you can't take me away because I've only ever had one father and this is him and I'll call nobody else father. And by the end of it, like, Cathy and Alex and I were just sobbing. And I have to say, I have got a recording of it and I can't quite bring myself to listen to it.
0: I'm not surprised.
2: I can watch A Fine Romance and I can watch Henry V and I can watch all those wonderful things, but that one just can't do yet.
0: No, it's one of the wonderful advantages that you have, though, having parents who are actors, that you can, again, look at them in their pomp, as it were, and you can, in a way remember them that way, I think, which is lovely.
2: Yeah. Lucy Bryars and I always have long conversations about how we're so lucky that in a time of, you know, cine films and things like that, that people don't really have anymore, we can see what our fathers looked like walking and talking and beautiful and funny and alive as in vitality and charisma and all of those things. But also that strange thing with grief where you can almost compartmentalize it Mm -hmm. and after a certain amount of time you have a certain handle on when you access those feelings and suddenly you know you can be quite fine and okay and you come in and you turn the television on and there they are and then it's like it hurts so much then Mm -hmm. but at the same time you know we just keep saying we're so lucky to have that so whenever Henry V yes. comes on, of course, we always text each other furiously saying, look at them both. Wonderful people.
0: Yes, there is that strange thing that people often say about loved ones that they've lost, that terrible thing where you can't remember their voice.
2: Yeah, I had it where I couldn't my dad's hands. I couldn't remember his hands. But then, you know, you get to watch whatever and you go, oh, yeah, there are his hands. I
0: remember. (laughs) That's lovely. (laughs) Okay, well, we're going to talk about five things that you've chosen to put into a time capsule. Yeah. So um, let's see what they are.
2: Number one would be Stratford-upon-Avon, the summer of 1976.
0: (laughs) That, to me, already sounds perfect.
2: Well, as far as I can remember, I was four. But as far as I can remember, that was about as perfect as they came those summers. We lived just outside Stratford because my parents were there all the time. I think my father did 14 consecutive years there and my mother did 11. So we lived in a big house in Chalcote, opposite Chalcote Park, with my grandparents. And that summer, of course, was the big heatwave summer. And I remember there being an infestation of ladybirds. And my (laughs) mom and I went to walk in Chalka Park and they had those box hedges and on every single leaf was a ladybird. So they glowed red. It was amazing. Mm. But that was the summer of Comedy of Errors, which both my parents did, with Nick Grace and Roger Reese. and also the summer of Macbeth, Mm. which my mom did with Ian McKellen. I don't think I remember anything else about the year other than that it was just hot and happy and just joyous, mm. just joyous. And and that particular production of Comedy of Errors was a musical. And at the end, everybody would stand up and dance and sing, and which I think was probably fairly progressive back then. And my dad, I think I was, I can remember what I was wearing. I was wearing a tartan dress with a white pinny over it. And my dad, at the end of the song, came back on stage and came down into the audience and got me oh. and picked me up for the first time I'd ever been on stage. And I remember, I remember the smell of it. I remember the feeling of looking out at that theatre. And I just remember thinking, oh, OK, yeah, this is exactly what I want to do. Mm. And it was just, I can't tell you, Mike, it was just so extraordinarily happy and creative and sparkly. And those people that were around, you know, there was Donald Sindon who would always pretend that he couldn't remember my name. So he'd go, he'd go <laughs> through every name that he could think of, beginning with the letter F. Fiona, no. Fanula, no. Fee, no. And then he'd always say, have you got your elephant? I <laughs> have no idea why. No. Have,
0: you,
2: have you got your elephant?
0: Today. Have you got your elephant?
2: Have you got your elephant? Then? <laughs> you know, and, and going up the Avon on a boat looking for water bowls and seeing my mum standing on the balcony outside the green room because she got there a bit too late to come with us. And the mop, the big fair that they have once a year in Stratford, and they had, bearing in mind this was an awfully long time ago, but they have one of those big bubbles Uh, where they project a film onto the inside of it. So you're standing in the road, but like they project a film of a roller coaster or something. Yeah. And I remember my mum and dad and I standing in there and being on this roller coaster. And then we went on the waltzes. My mother and I went on the waltzes. And then she was so sick. She had to go off for a matinee of Macbeth. She was so sick that she literally had to go hand over hand down the street. (laughs) And she always says, my dad was going, oh, Finn, are you okay? You all right, Finn? My mother was like, what about me? (laughs) What about me? I feel awful.
0: (laughs) She was off to work.
2: She was off to work.
0: Was that the year that she did Beatrice with Donald Syndon as Benedict?
2: No, No, I think that was the year before.
0: Yes, I saw that production, so I would have been... So 75, that meant I was 17. Wow. I absolutely fell in love with theatre through that and seeing Ian McKellen and Francesca Annis to Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. I went on the stage. I booked to go on the stage as a tour.
2: Did you? Yes,
0: and stood in the grave that they buried Juliet in and looked out at the audience. But I remember having exactly the same feeling, that feeling of, oh, that seeing the, the auditorium from the other side, from the stage... It's a seminal moment, isn't it, I think?
2: It is. And I I don't suppose a lot of people have the same reaction as us. I think a lot of people will go, oh, you know, I don't want to be up here. I don't want to be in front of all those people. But it felt incredibly natural. Mm -hmm. I've never worked there. Not for want of trying, but, uh, (laughs) you know, I think it's the big dream. I'll still hang on to it.
0: It took me 40 years to get there after that.
2: Well, I've been working for 32 years now and, uh, yeah, they still don't want me, which is absolutely fine. But, you know, here's hoping. Yeah, I
0: keep hoping. Well, quite. I think you're owed it, aren't you, surely?
2: Well, I'm not sure. I also do think that a certain member of my family has got in there and played all the parts that I could now play. (laughs) And amazingly, rather well.
0: Your dad was absolutely brilliant as Juliet.
2: He was. He, that, I mean, that was definitive, actually. <laughs> Not many people talk about that one. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it, Stratford is an extraordinary place. I, my best friend still lives there and two great friends of mine live in Stratford. And it's very odd whenever I go back. I honestly feel like I'm going home. Mm. Well, I haven't lived there since I was 12, but it's so familiar. And there's just a feeling about it. There's like a little bubble of wonderfulness that sits over that town mm. that is just extraordinary. Yes. And my dad and three of my grandparents are now buried in the graveyard next to Chalker Park.
0: Oh, marvelous. Yeah.
2: So they get to look out at all the deer and everything, which I have to tell you a very funny story. So Shakespeare apparently was done by the police for stealing deer out of Chalker Park. <laughs> they have these beautiful wild deer. And one night my parents came home after having been at the pub after the show and they saw a deer running about on the road. Mm-hmm. And my dad, <laughs> my dad said to my mum, we must put him back into Chalkup Park because he's obviously got out. <laughs> so they were busy trying to put this deer back into Chalkup Park. How? I don't know. I have no idea. And the police came along <laughs> and said excuse me, Mr. Williams, what do you think you're trying to do with that deer? And he was like, I'm putting it back. I'm putting it back. I'm not stealing it. I just love all of these two people trying to push a deer back from the
0: fence. The I don't want to go back in there. The grass is better here.
2: Exactly. I want to be an actor. <laughs>
0: It's a great shame that the policeman knew your father's name because he could have said name, sir. He said uh, Shakespeare.
2: Shakespeare, <laughs> uh, William Shakespeare.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and he could have said, "How do you spell that, sir?" So he said, "I'm the faintest idea." <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, that's been
0: good. Oh, brilliant.
2: Yeah, but especially that summer, but sort of Stratford upon Avon as a whole, really.
0: Yeah, what a gorgeous thing to have in there, particularly with that sort of summer weather. Yeah, just lovely. Okay, well, I'm very jealous because I think that's a gorgeous thing to have in your time capsule. And can I come and visit?
2: Absolutely.
0: In that case, we will put Stratford-upon-Avon from that glorious summer into your time capsule for you. That's your first item, Finty. Yeah. So what's number two?
2: So number two is a song from Sunday in the Park with George called Sunday, which ends the first half of the show and then it ends the second half of the show. and. We were taught that when I went to Central in 1991, we were taught that at the end of our first year. And we were a big year because we were the first year of the musical theatre course as well, which I was on. Mm-hmm. So there were 45 of us. And this particular song is broken up, I think, into six-part harmony. And we all learned it. And it sounds very discordant and it sounds kind of weird. And you think, well, how's that going to go together? And then we sang it for the first time. and I still I literally still can't hear that song without just becoming so completely overwhelmed with just joy at the the song itself. But just marvel at Stephen Sondheim mm-hmm. and his work. And it I, I've always been obsessed by musicals, but that was suddenly like hearing. Puccini for the first time and suddenly accessing a whole realm of music mm. that previously I hadn't heard or listened to. And so I then started sort of eating up Sondheim music. And we, I think we did a concert version of Company while we were there. Oh, brilliant! And then our last show before I left was a Little Night Music,
0: <laughs>
2: which now I have a family connection with. Mm. My brilliant friend, Casey Ainsworth, who's a wonderful actress, who's in Grantchester, she played Des Armfeld arnfeld and I played Anne Egman, mm. And we had the most amazing time. And my mum came to see it. She'd never seen it. She's like, oh, it's wonderful. It's <laughs> amazing. I love it. And then, of course, I think it was within six months she'd been offered it at the National. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, I had the great joy of hearing her sing it. Although I have to say Casey Ainsworth sang it really, really well.
0: Mm. Well, the thing is that your mother's version of it, I love that version because it's very much not a singer. I I don't know if she'd mind me saying that.
2: She wouldn't mind at all. She'd be the first person to say it.
0: It's the great joy of it is that it's acted. Those are the ones that you find the most moving.
2: Yeah. Many people have sung it beautifully. Mm -hmm. But for me... Her version of it is very beautiful. Mm. But um, I know that the time capsule isn't that big, so I sort of, I picked time. but the whole musicals thing, mm. I think there's nothing quite like seeing people in a musical. I think it's quite spectacular. Yes. And my son, who's about to be 25, poor chap, I, I you know, I hit him with the musical stick very, very early on in his life. <laughs> Um, when he was about seven, I thought, okay, this chap is ready to listen to rent (laughs) because I thought, you know, that's kind of cool. And he might engage with that because I was trying to find a way actually to present him with Sweeney Todd and company and those kind of things. But I thought, well, he's only small, so maybe a rock musical would be really good. And we were driving into his school very early in the morning, one day with the windows open and he was singing along. He knew all the words. He was singing along with a song called La Vie Boheme, which is the end of the first half of Rent. And it's all about all the wonderful things that make up this sort of gang of people. And he shouted out, It's for marijuana! (laughs) My seven-year-old has just shouted in front of all these very grown-up mothers, It's for marijuana. So I parked the car and I wound the windows up and I said, Now, darling, do you know what that means? And he went, Yeah. It's one of those fish that eats cows, isn't it?
0: <laughs> that's brilliant. So I was
2: like, do you know what? You're fine. Yeah. You're okay. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's exactly what it is.
2: That's exactly what it is. But he, um, he's sort of taken on my love of it all. And- Does he
0: work in smoked fish now? <laughs> <laughs> Would it be nice?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Very good.
0: Thank you. I sang at Send in the Clowns. Send in the Crowds, which was in Forbidden Broadway, which is the spoof version of that song. So I've never quite got to sing the actual song.
2: Send in the Crowds is good. Yes.
0: After Act One, no one is there. (laughs) (laughs) It's cruel. And I also auditioned for Sunday in the Park with George at the National. I didn't get it, but I got close oh god
2: i mean that was was that the one with maria Mm. and philip cross yes i mean when they announced that jake gillenhall was coming over to do it i said to my mother i said i have to take you to see it Mm. i need you to experience what i felt Mm. and because it's done so rarely that musical as well
0: yes it's hard
2: it's really hard and it's long You forget how long it is, Mm. but just the end of the first half, I think, is one of the most perfect things I've ever seen on stage, ever.
0: Yes, you're right. That description you give of it being lots of dissident parts, really, that you can't imagine would go together, and that when each part comes in, you think, this is going to spoil it. But in fact, it just adds to the beauty. It becomes more and more complicated, and by the end, more and more simple as a result. It's a work of genius. Yeah,
2: it's total genius. When Sammy was very little, because Ma's version of night music came before he was born. Right. So he grew up when she was singing it at like the Sondheim proms and things like that. And uh, <laughs> he said to me one day, he went, oh, mommy, is Ma going to do that Disney song again?
1: <laughs> and
2: I said, my love, what Disney song? And he went, you know, the one from Finding Nemo, Send in the Clownfish. Oh, <laughs> so it's known as sending the clownfish in our house
0: oh, you've got to write a book of his sayings it's absolutely brilliant Sending in the clownfish i'm going to call it that evermore <laughs> and that other song frozen fish fingers that's the one i like
2: absolutely <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i'm going to put that performance the national theater performance
2: it was maria friedman and philip Cost and my friend Claire Burt, and my friend Buffy Davis, <laughs> all of whom I've met subsequently, mm. in Sunday in the Park at the National. Most extraordinary. I didn't understand it all, but what I did understand inspired an inquisitive joy about his music.
0: Well, in that case, I shall put that performance at the National Theatre into your time capsule as your second item, Finty. Thank you. So we've done two. Let's move on to the next one. Okay, it's time for a short ad break, but we'll be back in no time, especially if there aren't any ads. Wish us luck.
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together.
0: Welcome back, after what I hope was a reasonably ad-filled break. But nothing too strenuous. Right, let's waste no more time to get back to the lovely Finty Williams to find out what else she'd like to keep safe in her time capsule.
2: So the next one is the Globe Theatre in London. Mm -hmm. I have been lucky enough to do three plays there in 2011 and 2013. I've never loved a building so much. (laughs) I've never loved literally the very bones of a building so much. I think it's utterly, utterly extraordinary. Mm. And the first day that I went there, I was joining a company who were already doing Henry IV. And I was joining it just to do the the play that comes sort of at the end of the season that you only do 15 performances of. And I, I was so frightened, I sort of squeezed myself in by the statue of Sam Wanamaker in the, in the foyer. And I was like, maybe if I just don't look up, they'll just forget that they're looking for me and I won't have to go in because I'm so frightened. Because I felt so overwhelmed by it. Because it's not like just doing a play in a theatre. You have the weight of responsibility somehow. And I wasn't even doing Shakespeare. So, you know, we were doing a, a new play, but I don't know, something about it feels bigger than you. Yes, And bigger than a normal theatre. I don't like to say normal theatre because theatres aren't normal. Uh, no. But you know what I
0: mean. I, I absolutely know what you mean. One of the problems people think that there is at the Globe is that it's full of tourists who come in to sort of go, well, let's go and see a bit of Shakespeare or let's go and see what it would have been like. But that gives you a double responsibility, I think, because they may well go in thinking, we'll watch a bit and then we'll go on and go shopping. And you've got to catch them. You've got to make them stay for the whole thing. It's hard.
2: It is hard. uh, And it's hard when you can see people and you can see people not enjoying themselves or conversely having a lovely time. Mm. But I met my chap who I've been with for 11 years. I met him on the first day of rehearsals for that play. And it's a terrifying experience doing a play in that theatre for the first time. Mm. I've never been so frightened. I mean, it, the, the play opened and a wonderful actor, called Day on and I had to come through the groundlings, which is all the people standing, and sort of weave around and go up on stage and be there for the first line of the first song. And we'd rehearsed it and it was fine. And But of course, we'd never rehearsed it with people in there. <laughs> and I'm only small. You know, I barely scrape five foot and we walked in and it was full of 700 people standing. And I couldn't see where the stage was. <laughs> so I had to keep saying, excuse me, can you see where the steps are? Because I can't. I eventually found it. But it's overwhelming and it's, there's such an energy in there as well. Historically, when I was there, the play is finished with a wonderful sort of jig or a music and stuff like that. And somebody said to me, when it gets to the end of the jig, just take in what happens. And I was like, "What? Well, I don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. No idea. And it's something to do with the building and, you know, the fact that it's circular and it's open. And there's a very special light at the end of those shows, I think, when it's dark. And it's the closest thing I can ever say to the feeling of being a rock star. Hmm. that's what it must be like I mean times thousands but that feeling of energy and the fact that you've all done this thing together whether it's been pouring with rain or beating down with sun you've all done it together it's the best feeling in the world Hmm. and it's pretty nice to be able to say to younger people you know when you see them doing their first play there it's really nice to be able to say just wait for the moment at the end of the
0: first night. (laughs) And
2: you see their faces and it's like, like, yeah.
0: And then also to be able to say to them, treasure this because it may never come again. The thing I love about the Globe is that it draws out of actors, many actors who will have played large theatres, done extraordinarily wonderful plays and done brilliant performances, but it forces them to accept the audience are there, which you often pretend they're not when you're doing a play, certainly a serious play, You almost act as if they're not there. But with The Globe, you can't ignore them. In a way, it's almost a pantomimic skill. I love it when you see somebody do a funny line and one person will laugh and they turn and look at them and go, yeah, I know you're there, you know I'm here. Yeah. Particularly in soliloquies. That's what soliloquies must have been. Yeah. It really brings out the true performance, I think, of Shakespeare.
2: I absolutely agree with you. And it's such a collaborative effort. You just think, yeah, okay, well, 2,000 people all got together and had this one experience tonight, you mm. know. I worked there, I did, um, I did Macbeth with Joseph Milson and Sam Spiro, who was brilliant, mm. and with the amazing Gorn Granger, who is married to Zoe Wanamaker, and he was playing Duncan. And the reason he took Duncan was because he thought he'd be able to go at the interval. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think he was 70 that year. And he thought, nice short evening. I'll be home before 10 o'clock. But Eve Best, who directed it, said she wanted him to be the doctor in the sleepwalking scene as well. (laughs) So he and I I would wait at one of the doors. And the first thing that happened was he was wearing quite a long cassock. And I had to run on and up the steps, which are quite steep, onto the stage, and we'd start doing the sleepwalking scene. And one, (laughs) one day I turned around and he'd walked up the steps, but walked up his cassock the whole way up. So by the time he got to the top, he was sort of three foot high, but couldn't work out how to step backwards. So played the whole scene as this sort of three foot high person. <laughs> and he laughed really badly, Gorn. He's a really bad giggler. And like I couldn't believe, it. I was literally looking at this person who was hunched over, coming then the further up the stage he got, he walked further up it. (laughs) He's
0: just inside his own robe. I remember the reviews. They loved the midget, they said.
2: Yeah, they absolutely loved him. Uh, He was brilliant. And then there was another occasion, same scene. And, you know, Lady Macbeth comes on doing the sleepwalking bit. And Gorn Granger comes on and he says, when was it she last walked? And this particular day, I think we'd had two shows. I think, you know, he was quite tired and still having a lovely time he walked on and he went when was it she last worked <laughs> Walked, walked. <laughs> and then we we had to go to the back of the stage and he went don't look at me
1: <laughs>
2: and then he went henry the eighth's in the audience do you know that and I was like, he's literally gone mad. But there was, there was a man dressed as Henry VIII in the audience. So that completely finished us <laughs> off. <on>. Full <laughs> Henry VIII sitting there watching Gorn Granger said, When was it she last worked? Walked!
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's brilliant. Sam is one of the most wonderful actresses, isn't she? She does comedy and tragedy and does them as you should do, as twin brothers. There's no difference.
2: Yeah. I absolutely adore her. I think she did her first job for my mum at Regent's Park when my mother directed The Boys from Syracuse. Mm. So I think I was about 16. So I've known her and I look up to her hugely. I look up to her as, as an actress and as a comedian, as a singer, as a performer, but as a person. Mm. She's a truly extraordinary woman.
0: Mm. Do you know I was the first actor to speak Shakespeare on the Globe stage? stop it. No, it's true. Hardly anybody knows this, because I did it just after the stage had been laid. I was filming there, and we were being interrupted all morning by banging. And then it stopped. And I went into the auditorium, and these builders were putting their tools away. And I said, is it finished? And they said, yes. I said, can I walk on it? And they said, yeah, mate, go on. So I climbed up on the stage. And then I said, you're going to have to excuse me. And I went... How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. What is a man if his chief good and market of his time? And I just went into my my Shakespeare. And when I'd finished it, these blokes stood there looking up at me and they went, oh, very nice, mate. (laughs) (laughs) So I am the first actor to speak Shakespeare on the Globe stage, well, I like to think since Burbage.
2: That's just amazing. What a story. How amazing. What an amazing thing to be able to say. I know.
0: I don't say it very often, but because in a way it seems almost unbelievable because you think, oh, well, it must have been those people at the opening ceremony. It must be Vanessa Redgrave or or your mother.
2: Yeah, my mum and dad were there. Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll be able to tell my mother that.
0: Which is why they should employ me, I think, surely, just on that alone.
2: Definitely, both of us.
0: Both of us. And then we go to the RSC for a nice long season.
2: Or ten. I have to say that when I was there, there was a gala to raise money for the Wanamaker, which is the Little Mm Theatre. And it was very, very unfinished. But I had to record part of the sleepwalking scene in the Wanamaker with all the scaffolding up and things like that. So maybe I'm the first person to have spoken Shakespeare on the Wanamaker stage. There you are. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to claim that for myself. I think so. (laughs) Even if I wasn't.
0: Let's get it put in the programme. The History of the Globe Theatre. Yeah. We want our names there, please.
2: Michael Fenton Stevens, Fenty Williams.
0: Yep. That's a certainty.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I like that very much indeed.
0: Uh, But we will take that glorious theatre and we shall put it into the time capsule for you thank you. Wow, so you've got Stratford and the Globe.
2: I have got Stratford and the Globe. I did think about that. I was like, is that a bit trite? But Stratford as a place and as a time and the Globe as a building.
0: I think it's perfectly fine. They're good choices, very good choices. Okay. And so much comes with them, that's the point. So much is there. Yeah. You only have to walk through the doors of the Globe and you feel that history.
2: Yeah, but it's also, you know, Yes, these are places, but it's so much about how those places make the people who work in them. So it's the people and the ethos, you know, it's it's that.
0: Lovely. Okay, Finty, so we've got two left.
2: Yes. Do you want the good one or the bad one?
0: That's very much up to you.
2: The bad one sort of leads on from the good one, so if that's okay to do it that way. Yeah. Um, so my last good one mm-hmm. is Tucson in Arizona.
1: I've
0: never been there.
2: Mike, I cannot tell you about how extraordinary it is. I always thought, I think it's a bit like Norfolk. You only ever go there if you're going there. You don't tend to pass through Arizona to go to anywhere else, except possibly New Mexico, but you might have a quicker way of getting there. I have been sober for 16 years. um, And I got to a stage where I had to go to rehab. I had to do something about it. And I was told about this place in Arizona called Cottonwood to Tucson, which at the time was one of the few rehab places that didn't just sort of detox you. They got to the bottom of why you did what you did. So I got on a plane and I went out there full of trepidation, having been told it was the middle of the desert, you know, <laughs> yeah. oh, I was like, oh. March. Okay. So it's going to be boiling hot. So I packed a lot of summer clothes. And I got there and it was grey and bleak and there were no trees and there were no flowers. And the first morning I was there, I was given a safety lecture on the fact that I would come across tarantulas, black widow spiders and rattlesnakes. (laughs) And I said to an extraordinary, amazing woman who works there called Rami, I said, I'm off. I can't do this. This is not for me. I'm not going to get better here. No. And she said, give me two days, give me two days. And she said, if you really hate it after two days, I'll drive you to the airport. So I said, okay, fine. Hideous, hideous place. I think I wrote in my diary, I think I've landed on the moon. (laughs) It was also dark. And they kept telling me about six foot long rat-like creatures that would come and attack you with tusks. (laughs) I know. I know how to really mess with somebody who's trying to get well. Anyway, on the night of the third night, it rained and it rained like it does in the desert. It really hammered it down. And the next morning, I can only say the closest thing I can liken it to is the scene in The Wizard of Oz where the first bit has all been in black and white and then she opens the door and she's in colour. Because I've never, I've never, ever, ever in my life seen anything like it. The mountains were sort of glowing pink and roses the size of your fists had come out and bougainvillea and ground herbs. And there were little quails everywhere. And then in the cactuses, there were little tiny owls sitting in holes, which had been made by the woodpeckers. Mm-hmm. There were red cardinal birds. There were roadrunners. The great big six-foot things with tusks are actually things called javelinas, which are wild pigs, and they come running up to you with their babies and things like that. (laughs) It is, apart from the fact that they had some of the best psychoanalysts and therapists and people there, somebody said to me that, that all the spiritual ley lines of the world converge in this particular place, and I do honestly believe it's true.
0: When you're in a place like that, if you're feeling despondent and it makes you feel despondent, it's going to be very difficult to get better, isn't it? But actually suddenly feeling positive and feeling alive, I suppose. Feeling
2: alive, but also feeling like suddenly you're the size of the top of the head of a pin Hmm. and that these mountains and these cactuses and this landscape has been there for so long and hopefully if we don't mess it all up we'll be there for a lot longer than I will be Mm. and then you go well if I'm the size of a head of a pin then the things that I fear and the things that make me do what I do are even smaller
0: yes it's a sense of priority and putting things into context
2: yeah it's one of the most extraordinary places I've ever been and and I I'm desperate to take Sammy and my mum and Joe back But at the same time, I'm really frightened that they won't see what I saw. Mm -hmm. I mean, things like the sunsets, because of the sand, the sunsets are like somebody's literally just thrown a paint box at the sky. (laughs) It's blue and it's green and it's pink and yellow. and, And I saw a double rainbow when I was there, but not a double rainbow sort of going the same way, a double rainbow going the opposite ways over each other.
0: Oh, right. How extraordinary.
2: I mean, I... It sounds like describing somewhere that doesn't exist, but it does exist. (laughs) And it's just such a healing place. Mm. You can feel it through, you know, like in New York, they say you can walk for hours and hours and hours because the electricity comes up through the ground Mm. in Arizona. It's like just energy. I don't, I, I, you know, I sometimes struggle with people when they talk about things like this, but it's the only way I can describe it. Just energy coming up through the earth. And it's a, totally magical place
0: and it worked
2: it did work yeah
0: which is brilliant isn't it
2: yeah it's it's a miracle and so my time capsule has to has to contain the thing that has allowed me to be here
0: yes i have accepted over the last two years largely as a result of lockdown and isolation that i've got into a habit with drink that is not good and i've stopped
2: oh wow Mm. That's amazing.
0: And my aim is to do exactly what you've done. So we'll see.
2: Well, you know, if that's what feels right to you, Mm -hmm. then I encourage you 100%. If you're one of those people that goes, okay, I'm going to stop, but at Christmas and weddings, weddings are tricky. (laughs) Weddings are really tricky. (laughs) Uh, But there's a bit of a wedding that's really tricky. Then the rest of it's fine. Uh, Then you, you drink on those occasions, all power to you, whatever works for you. Yeah. None of those things worked for me. I had to just stop. But I do think my parents had a very good friend called Herman Barr, who was a rabbi. And he said to them, in every situation, you must take the pluses. That's the only way to get through life. Look for the pluses. I would never have experienced Arizona, the people that I met, the wildlife I saw, the extraordinary magnetism of all of that, if I hadn't got to a place where I needed it. Mm. So I'm really lucky that that happened.
0: Yes, it sounds magical. I can picture it. I can feel it. I can feel, as you say, I can feel that energy coming out of the ground. And I'm exactly like you. Normally, those sort of phrases make me go, oh, for goodness sake. Yeah. But I know what you're talking about. There are moments in this world where you just can't deny the fact that something else is happening.
2: 100%. I fully, fully encourage anyone if they get the opportunity to go there.
0: That's on the bucket list. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then. Right, I'm going to put Tucson, Arizona. But, uh, yeah, the cottonwood to Tucson, definitely. Lovely. Okay, so that leads us on to the thing you want to get rid of.
2: Yeah, the thing I really want to get rid of. I've really agonised over this. And, you know, when I heard Fern Britton talking about the itchy labels, I was like, yeah, there are things like that. (laughs) But I spoke to Joe at length about it, and he said, what is the thing that makes you the most angry? And I said, the effect that COVID has had on the mental health of genuinely brilliant people. And that's the thing that makes me the most angry. And I don't want it to sound trite. I don't want it to sound like, oh, she said that because that's like, you know, that's the thing to say. I have watched brilliant, amazing, talented people around me be made to feel unnecessary and inadequate and unworthy of their place within this industry. I've watched Friends. I have a dear friend called Hannah Chisick, who is the most amazing director. She's got a little boy and she lost 15 jobs overnight.
0: The terrible thing is it's not as if you go, well, that happened for two years and then it'll just pick up again. It'll just start again. It just doesn't. For many people, it's like starting again.
2: It's exactly like that. Mm. You and I have been in this business for a long time. And although it's not like my parents' days at the RSC, where you could climb a sort of ladder and you could choose whether you wanted to stay at the RSC for another year or whatever, it felt like there was a progression. Mm. And I honestly feel not only am I back at the bottom of the ladder, but I'm not quite sure where the ladder is anymore.
0: Right. Yes, I think that's true for a lot of people.
2: That's the feeling that I hate. I hate people not believing in themselves anymore. And and there was a point where the very thing that we do, that we have given up families, time, emotion, energy for, was made to feel like it fundamentally didn't matter.
0: And still to an extent. I mean, people in theatres and people who are filming are still astonishingly restricted by covid And many other industries and many other professions have gone back to basically back to normal. You know, if you happen to get COVID, you take the time off, you go back, you stay at home. Whereas that can't happen in the theatre, it can't happen in filming. I'm still fundamentally isolating myself in order to be able to do the work that I have coming up. Yeah. And we're absolutely not saying that we don't appreciate that many people in in the health industry, for example, have basically avoided their families for two years in order to be able to carry on doing their job, which is extraordinary.
2: They are all completely extraordinary.
0: But in a way, they were doing a job. The point I think that you're making, and I think it's valid, is that for most people in the acting profession, the job just disappeared. Yeah. Everything that you'd ever trained yourself for, everything you'd ever aimed to do and everything you'd worked at for many years, suddenly it wasn't there anymore.
2: Yeah. And I don't know how true those posters were about Fatima's going to retrain as a plumber, <laughs> you know, with the ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. I don't know how true those were. I don't know whether, you know, it was just useful to put them out. I, I have no idea. Nevertheless, I saw a lot of people who already felt vulnerable Feeling useless. Mm. And brilliant people who write plays, direct plays, build sets, make wigs, work front of house, are actors, are dancers, are singers. Those are all vocational talents. And every single person who works in theatre has given up something in their lives in order to do this job. It's not like a funny little thing we do on the side. No. And that's what I feel the opinion of our industry was for a bit.
0: Mm. So I think absolutely taking the effect that that had on very dedicated people and just taking away all their confidence and belief in themselves, I think, yes, I'd love to lock it away and get rid of it for you. Let's bury it deep. Let's rebuild. Absolutely. And as an example, before you go, Finty, I'm going to give you an example of just how caring and thoughtful people can be within the acting profession by saying that I once did an episode of As Time Goes By. Oh. In front of the studio audience, the opening scene was your mother and Geoffrey Palmer discovering me in their house in a dressing gown, and they had no idea who I was. And it turns out I was the boyfriend of one of their daughters. And I knew everything about this house, so clearly I'd been there many, many times, but they'd never met me. I'd then make them breakfast whilst talking to them. <laughs> And so that was what I was about to do in front of a very large and very expectant studio audience. And I was absolutely terrified. And just before we started, your mother came to the bottom of the stairs when she looked up she said, Mike. And I went, yes. She said, isn't it frightening? And I said, yeah. She said, still, we'll be all together. Oh. And off she went. And I know that she wasn't particularly frightened. She'd done lots of those recordings. And I know that she did that in order to encourage me and to make me feel better. And it was a really, really beautiful thing that I've never forgotten.
2: Oh, that's so lovely, Mike. Thank you so much. I shall tell her that.
0: Do. So there we are. That's your time capsule done. And how brilliant to see you. How lovely to talk to you. Thank you.
2: Well, it's just such a joy. Thank you so much. And I hope that it wasn't. Right. <laughs> it's so lovely to see you
0: as well. Well, I hope we do in the flesh soon.
2: Well, we will when we're at the RSC. I'm
0: trying to think what parts we'd be casting. Okay. No, hang on a minute. If Ian McKellen's just done Hamlet, I want to do Romeo and Juliet. Okay. We can do it.
2: Bonds in frames.
0: <laughs> you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton Stevens, and my guest, Finty Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, there are plenty more for you to listen to. And if you subscribe to this podcast, then you'll receive all new episodes as they're released. And then you can either download them to keep or stream them. You can also go back and listen to any of the episodes we've released so far, with guests such as Mark Gates, David Baddiel, David Jason, uh, David Mitchell, Shapiko Sandy, Mark Steele, Rob Bryden... Uh, There's Tim Vine, Lee Mack, Ross Noble, Harry Hill, Caroline Quinton, Joe Pasquale, Sanju Bhaskar, Dara O'Brien, Richard Wilson, Angela Barnes, Izzy Sooty, Omid Jalili, Katie Brand, Bonnie Langford, Ed Byrne, Sean Walsh, Mark Watson, Mark Thomas, Dune McKeggan, Shane Ritchie, Annika Rice, Rebecca Front, Arthur Smith, and of course, Stephen Fry. Uh, Not to mention, Rufus Hound, Chris Addison, the Reverend Richard Coles, and Janet Ellis... Sorry, I didn't mean to mention them. And I won't say a word about Rick Wakeman, Craig Ferguson, Russell Grant, Tim McInerney, Robert Bathurst, Stephen K. Amos, Milton Jones, Fred McCauley, Andy Osho, Clive Anderson, Anna Chancellor, Kate Thornton and Charlie Higson. Yeah, there's quite a lot, aren't there? Do you know what? I think it'd be easier if you just looked it up and picked the ones you like. Anyway, do rate this show and maybe, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, write a short review. That'll be fun. You can listen to the theme tune anytime you like on Spotify. It's by Pass the Peas Music. And this cast off production was produced by John Fenton Stevens for A Cast. So that's it. Thanks for listening. Bye. Oh, did I mention Josie Lawrence? No, I don't think I did. And, of course, there's Les Dennis. Alan Davies, did I mention him? Oh, Barry Cryer. How could I forget him? Oh, he was so funny, we made two episodes with him. But then there's Gary Wilmot, Count Arthur Strong, Mitch Ben, Danny John-Jules and Robert Llewellyn from Red Dwarf. Sarah Green, Fern Britton, Rita Simons, <laughs> the brilliant Cheryl Baker, there's Tony Slattery, Anne Hegarty, the governess, Patterson Joseph, always oh, a brilliant actor, Josie Long, Ellis James, Nick Knowles, Matthew Kelly, Bill Brewer, Jan Stewart, Peter Gurney, Peter Davy, Dan Whitman,
1: Harry Hawks,
0: and Good. Bye!